You are listening to Hit Play, Not Pause, a feisty menopause podcast for active, performance-minded women. I am your host, Celine Yeager. Each week, I bring you advice from athletes, scientists, researchers, and other experts to help you feel and perform your best, no matter what your hormones are doing. This show is a production of Live Feisty Media. Hello, strong, feisty women. So we have a little bit of a different show for you this week, but one I think you'll all really enjoy and get a lot out of, not just through menopause and athletics, but for life. It is with statistician Leslie McClure. Leslie is the chair of the Department of Epidemiology and Biostatistics at Drexel University's Dorn's Life School of Public Health, where she works with other scientists to help them better formulate, design, analyze, and present their science. Leslie reached out to me and offered herself as a guest because she's part of our Hit Play Not Pause private Facebook community, and she recognized that a lot of us are out here doing our own research, Googling symptoms, looking at menopause resources, and even accessing medical literature. And she recognized that, one, there's a lot of sketchy information on the internet, and two, even if you find a medical study, not all studies are created equal. So she thought it could be helpful to do a show on how to dig into your own research, including where to start, what makes a good study, what features of a study make for research you can trust, causation versus correlation, and much more. In addition to that, Leslie talks about her own menopause experience, which started when she was 39 and continues to this day, nine years later, and how it has impacted her own training and fitness. I really loved this part of the story because when Leslie started noticing that her cycles were becoming kind of a disaster, she consults her doctor who told her, you're too young to be going through menopause because the average age is 51. And Leslie thought to herself, well, I'm a statistician and I know a bit about averages and standard deviations. And I just love that because even medical professionals are not always thinking in correct mathematical terms when it comes to menopause. And so often they will tell a woman who's even in her early 40s that she's too young to be starting the menopause transition when she most definitely, definitely is not. So anyway, I really love this conversation and I hope you do as well. Okay, before we get to it, I invite you to follow us at Feisty Menopause on Instagram and Facebook. You can also join that private Hit Play Not Pause Facebook group where we have 19,000 women or so in there helping each other out. And speaking of research, you can sign up for my weekly blog where I share the latest research and what it means for you. You can sign up for that at feistymenopause.com. Thank you, as always, for the five-star ratings and the great reviews. It means a lot to me, and it is helping the show continue to grow now going into its third year. And if you haven't already, check out our first ever Feisty Menopause Performance Retreat that we are holding in Lake Nona, Florida this February, the weekend of the 24th through the 26th. It is going to be super fun and super educational. This retreat includes two nights at the Lake Nona Wave Hotel, Adari Motion Analysis, uh, private strength and conditioning sessions, nutritional sessions, a private feisty menopause deck event, which is a fun, non-competitive hands-on training and performance session we'll all do together. And this is our first time doing anything like this. We have people signing up, which I'm super stoked about. Space is limited. We're going to hold it at 20. So check it out at feistymenopause.com. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. 
I'd like to say thanks to NutriSense. They are continuing to support the show, and I appreciate that. I have learned a ton about how my blood sugar responds to food and life through using their CGMs, and I appreciate their continued support. Finally, this is the last show before our holiday break. We will have a two-week break, and there will be rebroadcasts coming your way. One is with Dr. Stephanie Falbian, the medical director of the North American Menopause Society, and she talks all about the state of menopause right now from her perspective. That was a great show. It aired while I was at the North American Menopause Society annual meeting. And then the next uh, rebroadcast will be with Dr. Carla DiGirolamo, and that is the one where she is addressing whether or not a woman needs menopausal hormone therapy, which was a tremendous conversation and one that continues to be, maybe even more so now, important to hear. When we come back in the new year, I've got some really great guests lined up. I'm very excited. We have Ironman champion and podcaster Nicole DeBoom coming in out of the gate in the new year. And I have an amazing conversation with Dr. Fatima Cody Stanford, who is one of the premier research in obesity medicine right now, who is blowing people's minds with what really drives weight gain and loss. And you will not want to miss those. So have a great holiday. Have a safe holiday. Enjoy your time. Enjoy your family. Thank you for being here. I am so, so appreciative of every single one of you. And I just want to just wanted to say that as we close out this year. Thank you. Okay, enough of me. Let's have a few words about our awesome sponsors and get on with the show. All right, Leslie, thank you for uh, reaching out to me to have this conversation about research, because as I was just telling you before I hit record, I'm a I'm a giant geek about this stuff. So I am, uh, you know, it's a little bit of a different kind of show for us since I usually do the research or talk to researchers and then present it here. But, uh, you know, you want to help women do their own research and understand what they are reading. And I think that is awesome. Thank you. So let's talk about you a little bit because you did tease a little bit when they're back and forth that um, you've had kind of your own menopause journey, which is still ongoing. And I know I saw when I did a little research on you that you're a runner, but you said that you uh, started perimenopause when you were 39, has continued for nine years and is still ongoing. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I was 39 and I started my period when I was 11, always had really regular periods. And all of the sudden I was having these super heavy periods every two weeks and then it would go three weeks and I wouldn't have a period. And um, and, and in fact, I tried to go and see my OB and then I kept rescheduling it because I didn't want to go when I had a period. And finally, I was like, I don't really have a choice. (laughs) So my OB says, my male OB says to me, oh, you're only 39. You're too young to be going through menopause. The average age at menopause is 51. And I was like, okay, well, the statistician in me knows there's a standard deviation around that, right? So I was like, well, that's great. Then if I'm not going through menopause, then tell me what's wrong because something's not right. And um, and that started two things. It started me sort of doing my own research to try to figure out what does it really mean to go through menopause? Like I had no idea about what was going to happen in my body and how long it could take and what it meant to be in menopause. But also it started me um, having like a, a, a series of all sorts of tests um, to figure out what was wrong with me because my doctor was so sure that I wasn't going through menopause because I was too young. 
And then I, my mom had breast cancer. And so I have for my whole life, my whole adult life been really, um, I've seen, I've gone to doctors regularly. I've seen specialists and I went to my breast doctor and I started describing what was happening. And she was like, let me send you to a reproductive endocrinologist who, who works with women who are having all sorts of hormonal issues. And when I described my symptoms to her, she was like, oh, of course you're going through menopause. I don't even need to do any tests. And it was so refreshing to talk to someone who actually knew what they were talking about. Yeah. Wow. And, and was it, um, was it early? Had your mom gone through early? Like, did she, you know, have that conversation with you? So no, nobody had ever talked to me about it. This was the other thing. Like my mom was 48 when she had breast cancer and okay. she had chemotherapy and radiation that caused her to go through menopause Okay, and she never really talked about it. I had no idea. Um, and so it did get me to start talking to everybody about it, maybe to the point like people are like, okay, just shut up about menopause already. And, you know, it was shortly after that I started having hot flashes and night sweats and, um, but still having periods first, like every three months and then every six months. And now it's been 11 months. And so I'm cheering and, and hoping that after, I mean, I turn 49 tomorrow. So I'm hoping that after this 10 year journey, that it's going to finally stop, but it doesn't mean all those other things are going to stop. Um, you know, and, and it's been really interesting. Like the doctors, I I've really like searched and searched for a doctor who really understands. Um, and really like, I don't need to go to a doctor who has a bunch of women, pregnant women sitting in their office anymore. And who really specializes in that. I want to go to a doctor who knows what I'm going through and who understands how to treat it or how to manage it. And so I finally found one, but it's, it's been, it's been a journey. Like, I, I, I mean, women don't talk about menopause the way we talk about menstruation and it's really sad and really fascinating. Yeah. I'm, and that's why we're here. Yeah. <laughs> Just, that's why I love what you're doing. Trying to change that. So I'm curious, um, you, you are a runner. I mean, what kind of runs you do did, was this all impacting, you know, your training and your fitness and what, what, if any treatments have you done over this period? So, so I've run for as long as I can remember, I did my first half marathon when I was in graduate school and, um, I did my first, uh, sprint triathlon in 2019 and did the duathlon in 2021. They were off for 2020. Um, and what I found was that I was doing okay until, and it's hard to, to sort of figure out sort of the intersection of COVID and, and menopause, but it was during COVID when I started to be home all the time and eat sort of whatever was around and that I really noticed that like my body was really changing. And it was a friend of mine who she and I started training together for the, for the duathlon that she first told me about your show. And, and that's how I started to learn about like the changes your body was going through and how that affected your training. And so a little over a year ago, about a year and a half ago, I hired a personal trainer who, who first thing she said to me was, you're not eating enough. You need to start eating more protein. Yay. <laughs> um, and then she said, you know, you need to start lifting heavy. And then I started to read, you know, next level and all of the, the work that was coming out of you and Dr. Sims. And I was like, okay, this is the right person to be, to help me. And, um, 
And it's made a difference. Like I, I had been gaining a ton of weight and I was carrying it all in my stomach and all my muscle was just flabby. And it just wasn't any fun. Like I just felt like I was running. And, and the other thing was I was only running. I was only running and I was run, I was doing cardio. So when I started doing the triathlon, I'd run or I'd bike or I'd swim, but I wasn't doing any lifting. And so, yeah, it's made a difference. Yeah. Well, that's great. I'm glad. I'm glad to hear that. But you didn't take any. Um, I mean, I know you have breast cancer in the family, but was there any hormone course at all? Did you talk about that? Yeah. So I have talked about it. My mom had estrogen receptive breast cancers, so my doctors have been really hesitant to give me hormones. And actually, way back in the beginning, when I saw that reproductive endocrinologist, I I did start taking progesterone, um, but it was giving me really strange side effects, like. I was getting dizzy when I stood up and I had worked at the same place for 10 years, but all of a sudden I'd go out at the end of the day and I couldn't find my car in the parking garage and just weird things that, and I've had a history, I've had a bad history, even with like oral contraceptives and um, uh, other forms of birth control that were hormonal of really strange side effects from the time I was 18. Like I've never really been able to take the pill and it just wasn't for me. I just, yeah. unfortunately, because, you know, the hot flashes can be just so awful and to be able to control them better. Progesterone definitely seems to be one of the ones that when I hear people talk, that's the one that's like, I did not do so well with the progesterone. Yeah. Yeah. The only hormones I've ever really like responded well to are pregnancy hormones. My body loved being pregnant, but all the other hormones, not so much. So yeah. Yeah. And I, yeah. So I don't know. I keep just hoping it's going to end soon. It's going to end soon. Um, but hope's really not a treatment. No, it, no, it's not. Well, it, but hopefully, you know, it does. And, and that there will be some, you know, the hot flashes. There, there are other, I mean, if the hot flashes become really disruptive, there are other treatments, you know, they talked about that at the North American, North American menopause society, you know, there's other pharmaceutical avenues you can take. I mean, whenever you introduce a pharmaceutical, obviously you introduce a potential for side effects, but. Yeah. We've talked about low dose, um, antidepressants, I guess have been shown to be effective. Um, but there's other side effects that come with them. And so it's a balance. It's, it's figuring out what you can tolerate and what you can't. And, um, I'm always, I'm always been really hesitant to take any sort of drugs and medications and um yeah and now that it's cold it's been a lot better <laughs> it's funny it's like okay, yeah. yeah but i get that for decades running shoes have been researched tested and designed for men Brands have relied on the shrink it and pink it approach to sell male shoes to female customers. That's why we are stoked to be working with Hedda's. Hedda's designs athletic footwear for women that elevates performance, safety, and style. Hedda's has unlocked the science behind women's biomechanics through dedicated research and creates better shoes for women's performance. Some of Hedda's special features include a lower ankle collar to reduce rubbing on women's ankle bones, a breathable mesh toe box to allow for ventilation and accommodate female toe shape, a more narrow and reductive heel cup to reduce heel slippage and take pressure off the Achilles, a rounded instep that creates a snug fit through the middle to match the curvature of a woman's foot, and supercritical foam and a PBEX plate in the midsole to keep our legs going when the going gets tough. 
Hedis has three shoe models designed for different sessions, the Alma Cruise for your long runs, the Alma Tempo for training days, and the Alma Speed for pushing the pace. I've been running in the Alma Tempos, and they are a pleasure to train in. You can get your own pair of Hedas at Hedas.com and use the code FEISTY20, that's all caps, FEISTY20, for 20% off. Check it out today. We'll put a clickable link in the show notes to make it a snap. Musculoskeletal health is everything during menopause. Everyone knows how much I love Joint Health Plus from Prevenex, which has helped me get back to distance running after arthritic toes stopped me in my tracks. Now they have a product that has become my go-to for muscle strength and recovery, Muscle Health Plus. Muscle Health Plus contains all the key ingredients we talk about on this show, like creatine monohydrate, essential amino acids, and branched-chain amino acids, Plus, even more cutting-edge ingredients like HMB and estrogen that are scientifically shown to increase muscle growth, recovery, and strength. I use it every day during my early morning lifting sessions, and there's no question that it helps my power during those workouts and my recovery after. Plus, I love having everything I need from the best high-quality ingredients in one reasonably priced shake. I've also heard from fellow users who have had bloating or GI upset in the past from creatine that haven't had any of that with Muscle Health Plus. I make my shake with almond milk and espresso, but it's also good with ice cold water, which makes the flavor really pop. As always, you can get 15% off your first order with the code HIPPLAY, all caps, one word, at Previnex.com. That's HIPPLAY, all caps, one word, at Previnex.com. Do your muscles a favor and head on over and get some today. Good sleep. The one thing that sets you up for a great workout and a good day is quality sleep. We talk about it all the time here on the show, which is why I'm stoked to have Lagoon Sleep as a new sponsor. Because one of the most overlooked tools in a great sleep toolbox is the thing you literally rest your head on eight hours a night, your pillow. A quality pillow is everything. Otherwise, you end up tossing, turning, punching, and folding your pillow, waking up with neck pain, and all the stuff that happens when your pillow doesn't meet your personal comfort needs. Say hello to the most comfortable sleep you've ever had with Lagoon. They start you out with a two-minute personalized pillow quiz and then pair you with your perfect pillow. I got the Otter, a cooling adjustable pillow that is perfect for side sleepers who run warm at night like I do. It is a dream. It's fully adjustable, so I was able to get the perfect loft and support And the cooling feature is everything. As someone who turned into a furnace every evening before menopause, I appreciate that the otter is stuffed with shredded gel-infused memory foam, which instead of trapping heat from my neck and head, draws it away and dissipates it. It's truly delightful. I'm a good sleeper, and otter has taken it to the next level with both support and cooling. Put my head down, good night, Irene. My aura ring confirms what little tossing and turning I was doing is gone. The beauty of the pillow quiz is you can get the perfect pillow that you need to and make your sleep the best sleep you can have. Go to lagoonsleep.com slash hit play and take the two minute quiz to find your perfect match and then use the code hit play all caps one word for 15% off your first purchase. Sweet dreams. Thank you for sharing that because I'm sure a lot of women are going to relate to that story. It's, it's, you know, one that so many people have gone through. And now let's sort of like slide into this topic of conversation about research. So, you know, say a woman is starting to enter this time, she's having some symptoms, or she wants to look up something her doctor is talking about and be more informed. 
you know, I know like I go to PubMed and you know, that's the research database for the NIH and there's 13 million studies in there, right? There's so many studies and then you can go into them and you're like, I have no idea what I'm looking at. Um, where, where do you start? Yeah, well, so uh, first say about PubMed and about scientific papers, they're written for scientists. And so for, you know, most of us to, to dive into PubMed like that is not over, not only overwhelming, but it's also like the language is different. And, and so, you know, I recommend Google, Google is a great place to start just Googling it, but then you have to think about what the sources are when you're reading. So, you know, looking for, maybe more popular press articles that cite real science, right? That cite that cite these papers in PubMed um, and also that aren't trying to sell something. Oftentimes, you know, someone will, you know, or a site will be trying to promote their own product, but they're not necessarily, um, they, they haven't done rigorous science to, to support it. And so they're just giving some, throwing out some numbers because it sounds impressive, but there might be no basis for, for the data. And so just trying to find, you know, it's hard. It's, it's really hard, right. To say what's a reputable source, but I think the, the key that I look for is whether or not the source cites the original literature. So do they do the work of trying to interpret it for us? Yeah, that is a good place to start. And is, you know, I, I think that's a good um, tip regarding if it's a site. And sometimes that's not evident, right? When you go to a site, it's not immediately apparent that they're selling something. And sometimes they look amazing. I, I have been at sites that I'm like, something I like, I don't know where, like what sets off my radar, but something in my radar is like, something's not right here. And then I'll dig and dig and be like, oh, this is just like an institute that is selling supplements, you know? Um, are there, are there red flags that you see that, that would caution you that what you're looking at is not a reputable source? Yeah, that's a good question. So it's hard. It's some, it is sometimes hard to tell what's reputable or not. And, um, and particularly when we're talking about research about menopause, where sometimes it's harder to find. And, um, so I think that who did the research is really important. So are they citing experts from, from, you know, reputable institutions or um, also do they have a lot of different authors or do they not? Um, do they use a lot of jargon? Is it trying to sort of impress you with language as opposed to some real, real information? Um, although that said, you know, when I go to PubMed and look at the literature, I feel like the papers are really just trying to impress me with jargon, right? So, <laughs> well, so sometimes that... it's hard to differentiate that if someone's trying to impress their their colleagues or if they're trying to sort of blow smoke over your head. Um, you know, there's there's the typical, you know, a lot of hospitals put out information or WebMD or those sorts of places, and most of those are fact-checked. So they, they you know, they're the, the bigger institutions aren't going to put something on their website that they haven't vetted. Um, I think if it's a sort of for-profit, oftentimes that's a that's a red flag if it's for-profit. Um, if there aren't sort of links to other people's data, if there's no supporting evidence, just this is what I found, but nobody else has found this, or, or I'm not going to share with you what other people have found, that might be a red flag. 
Um, if it's too good to be true. You just read my mind. I was like, that is such, if it's too good to be true, it is actually too good to be true. And I also look for words that that just set me off, like detox, toxins, things that I'm just like, what are you talking about? You know, I mean, it. I, I'm just like, that's like pseudoscience or soft science. I always look at that very cautiously. Yeah. I think the other thing is if they're not referencing, um, journals that are peer reviewed or they're not they're not commenting on something having been peer reviewed um then that's really important and that's it's sort of the basis of of what makes you know sort of science different from from some other things where there's this layer of of peer review which um sort of holds people accountable for the work they're doing and looks for the important things we think about when you're when you're doing a study or when you're doing research that to the best of our abilities we try to to implement in science. So to explain the peer review process to people, a, a how can you tell if something is peer reviewed and what does that actually mean? Yeah, so if you're looking at an original source, so not necessarily CNN or USA Today, but the paper that it came from, you can look at the journal that it's in. Most of the time, you can't even access the paper because they charge you for them a lot of the time, which is also, it's not a, a red flag. It's just a, a a bad side of science, right? Like it should be accessible to, to everyone, particularly publicly funded science should be accessible to everyone. Um, but you can look at the journal and it will tell you whether it's a, a peer-reviewed journal or not. Um, and peer review is the process by which a journal gets other experts to comment on the, the, the research within a paper. Um, and so like they might look for um, good study design. They may look for um, other aspects that make the science more, um, that, that make the science stronger. Let's talk about a little bit about that. Like, I think that's actually a great segue into talking about, because there are a lot of like just not great studies out there too. I mean, I I things come across my desk all the time. Nutrition research is fraught with with some issues, you know. And some of it is just because it's hard to do, you know. And some things like don't have a lot of funding to research. Like I understand. I I'm always a little hesitant to just toss everything in the trash if it's just not a great study because I I know I understand. Like I understand that this stuff takes a lot of. Uh, resources and money and time and not everybody has that and sometimes they're doing the best they can and they need to use recall because that's all we've got but like let's let's broadly describe in your in your mind like what what is good study design let's start there so let's let's let me first start with the fact that it is hard right so human research in general is really hard because we are so different so when you do research on on mice or on rats you can order mice that are identically the same in terms of their genetics and all of their properties, right? So you can control everything about them. You can control the environment they live in. You can control the amount of light they get at what times of day, when they eat, what they eat, right? But we can't do that with humans. And so the variability from person to person, how different we each are from each other, makes it really, really hard to do human research. And this is why we see things like one day a study will come out that says coffee is good for you. And then the next week, another one will come out that says coffee is bad for you because we're so different and we're not studying the same people with the same um, rigor. 
And so, so I want to start with that because I think we do, I I'm the same way. And I think actually like as a statistician, we train statisticians to be super critical of research. And I, I always have to stop and remind myself that, that no research is perfect. And a lot of that is because it is hard. As you said, it's really, really hard to study people. Um, so starting with that, that said, there are some things that, that make research more believable or stronger than others. One is sample size. I think that if you start to look up like what makes a good research study, the, the first thing you'll find is how many people were studied. And I think what we find in a lot of these nutrition studies too, is that they're really small samples. Um, so the next question is how big is big enough? <laughs> I just, yes, you just read my question. I was like, can you define like what small is <laughs> or what is big enough? So I, I would say that small is like less than 30 because we can't really capture enough variability across different people. Um, I'd say between 30 and 100, it's medium. Like I think over 100, usually we have, enough people to see what we want to see. I think when we start to get, there's some of these cohorts out there where they're studying thousands, if not the UK biobank. Yeah. But then we have the opposite problem, right? Then we have the problem. There are so many people. We have the ability to see really small differences and have to decide whether they're meaningful. So, so sample size, and it's hard. Like if, when, you know, when you study statistics, which everyone should, you, you learn about how to determine how big a study you need in order to see differences that are important right. and not just statistically important, but important for um, behavior change or important for in the clinic if you're you know a practitioner. So, so there's a whole field of research in, in statistics just about how big of a study do you need. Interesting. Um, so I think thinking about sample size is the first thing. So if it's a really small study, it doesn't mean that it's not true. It doesn't mean that it's not good research, but it's not enough alone to to be conclusive. Um, and I think that 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 we tend to see a lot of smaller studies um, in in women in particular. I think the next thing I would think about is whether or not it's randomized. So, this is again, this isn't always feasible and it's not always easy, but it's uh, it's sort of the gold standard in human research is to do a randomized study. And there's a lot of good reasons for that. Um, one is if we let people decide what. So when we randomize, we basically flip a coin and we say you're going to be in treatment A if it's heads, you're going to be in treatment B if it's tails. So if we think about like if we're, you know, estrogen you either get estrogen or a placebo, for example, and it's decided by a toss of a coin. It's random. And the reason we do that is if we let people come in and say, oh, I want to take estrogen or not, there might be differences in who does. For instance, I would come in and say, I don't want to take estrogen because I know my mom had an estrogen receptive breast cancer, right? So I have a fear, found it or not, that it might increase my risk of getting breast cancer. And so the people who would take one treatment versus another, who might decide to take one treatment versus another might look different. And so by randomizing, then we take away that self-selection. We also try by randomizing to balance the characteristics of the people in the two groups. So for instance, you know, we might get all older women who decide they want to take estrogen and all younger women who don't. 
And if we try to compare those, we don't know if we're comparing estrogen use or if we're comparing age. And so by randomizing, the goal is to get sort of the same distribution of ages in our two groups. And so then we can say any differences we see aren't attributable to age because our ages are about the same. It has to be attributed attributed to our treatment. Do they need to be blind if they're randomized? Like not knowing because so you don't have, I mean, the, the placebo effect is real as, as yeah. everybody says, you know, so yeah. if I, even if you randomize me, but I know I'm taking the estrogen and not the placebo, my brain is going to have an expectation. So it's desirable, right? Our goal is not only to 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 be blinded or masked to the treatment for the participants in the study, but also for the practitioners who are running the study, right? Because if I know that you're taking the placebo, when you come in and say, oh, this is making me tired, I may not write that down because I know you're taking the placebo and it's just your mind playing tricks on you, right? So, right. so yeah, so ideally... Everyone who's sort of involved in the study, whether they're the the participant or whether they're the practitioner, and even the statistician would be blinded. When I analyze the data, initially, I don't know what treatment is what, because I might change how I approach it, right, if I know who's taking what. So, but, but practically, that can't always happen. So, for instance, if you're trying to compare different exercise Right. <laughs> you're lifting heavy or you're lifting heavy. <laughs> like you can't have fake dumbbells and be like, it doesn't weigh anything. But right. yeah. Right. So and and sometimes there's there's other practicalities that that might impact that. So we try, right? When we design research, we try our best to keep everyone blinded or masked to the treatment. Um and you know, even to the point where like if it's a placebo controlled trial, so someone gets an, an inert or inactive tablet that we try to make it look as much like the active tra- tablet as we can. So we do right. we and it's expensive and it's it's time consuming, but we do a lot to try to to make everything as identical for everyone so that they don't know and we don't know. Yeah, no, I think that's that's uh as you say, it's not always possible, but when it is, it does yield, I think. The most, uh, you know, um, reliable is not the word I'm looking for, but you know what I mean? That, yeah, know, it takes away biases. It removes yeah. the ability for people to sort of, you know, say, oh, well, this is working because I know I'm getting the treatment. Right. Um, and then, you know, some of the other things we try to do, try to think about is generalizability. So who is the study in, right? So for instance, I think um, I was talking to a colleague of mine and she was telling me about there's a study in Norwegian white males about the impact of exercise um, on mortality, I believe. And we can't we can't learn anything from that study about women. Right. Or or we can't or for people of color, right? Or even for people who live outside of Norway. Right. So so we have to be careful about who's in the study and only make draw conclusions that apply to the people we studied. And so we try really hard to get a broad age range and to get diversity in our race and ethnicity and to look at people from different types of neighborhoods and different um different places in the country, right? We try to to take all those factors into consideration so that we have broad generalizability so that we can make broad statements. And I think when we are talking about what's a red flag, 
when people say that women should, right, that's, that could be a red flag. If you looked and they studied maybe 30 women and they were all between 40 and 60. Well, right. then we have to think about what might happen when you're over 60. And so um, we have to think about gender and age and race and ethnicity. We have to think about occupation and what kinds of occupational exposures, um, location, where people live. I work with a lot of people who who do a lot of research about how where you live impacts your health. And it can be for a number of reasons. It can be biological reasons, like what's in the water you're drinking, mm. or it can be for um, social reasons, right? What's what's in your neighborhood? How far are you from a grocery store or how far are you from a hospital? Um, so of course we can't always yeah. incorporate all of those things. Um, and this is why I think it, for me, like it gets harder and harder to see research and be like, that's good research because sometimes when you know a little too much, you you, it's, you get too critical, but, but it is, these are the things we have to think about when we're reviewing um, what's out there. And when, and, 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 you know, we can use these extreme cases, right. We can say a study of, of breast ca- cancer in men, right. That's a very extreme case, um, but we can't learn anything from that. And so, so those extreme examples help us kind of understand that, who's in our study matters. And so that's, that's another thing. If you're looking at um, information on the internet and you're trying to figure out if it's, if it's believable or plausible or not, if they don't talk about who's in their study, it's, it's hard to, to really hold it in high esteem. It's hard to say, you know, cause it could be, they studied all women under 30. And if you're trying to decide if a diet or if, if lifting heavy is appropriate for a perimenopausal woman, you know, studying primarily women under 30 probably won't have the same results as if you study women at a different age. And a lot of those studies, because they're in university settings, are on college age people, right? Like they were on young college age men forever. And now we've got women, but a lot, you know, by just by all of those factors that we were talking about, like money and resources and time, like you, you can find people to sign up for those studies at your university fairly easily. Mm-hmm. And especially if you're paying them, students love to oh, yeah. <laughs> come in and get a $50 gift card after they, you know, spend six hours in a virtual reality environment or yeah. 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 So then what, um, talk a little bit about like, what is a, what, determines or what signifies a strong result. And then that also, I think, bleeds into causation versus correlation, which we see a lot of. Yeah. So one thing that I think is important to think about is we present a lot of results in a relative fashion. So we might say that women who received the placebo were twice as likely to have something happen, right? But what's really important is the absolute risk. Thank you for saying that. And so you're welcome. (laughs) And so um, if the risk of something is very, very, very small, you can still be 100 times more likely for it to happen. And it still has very, very small risk. And so we get caught up in this relative world when we live in an absolute world. I'm just going to interject here because as somebody who has been guilty as charged over the years, when I was writing for a lot of the mainstream health magazines, we were on deadlines where we had to have something to say, and it had to be something that would make people pick up your magazine. And often 
we we intentionally would look at something and be like, like that's 50% bigger. Like we would find the most significant way to say something, yeah. even if it wasn't that significant. And that happens all the time, whether or not they're trying to do it or, you know, not knowingly trying to do it, you know, but whatever like that. And I have seen researchers do it themselves to promote their own research. Right. Well, and let's take a few steps back about why, right? Because if you don't have a meaningful result, then your paper is not going to get published. And if your paper doesn't get published, then you're not going to get promoted. And so it's this currency in, in academia and in, in academic research is published papers. And so, you know, we conflate what's statistically significant with what's clinically significant. And so, so we might have a statistically significant uh, result, which means that it's more likely that we didn't see this only by chance, right? But it may not be really meaningful. And, and I think like, I feel like my job is to work with other scientists to help them balance that, right? And I think that that's something we lose track of. And you're right. I mean, it's not just the media that does it. And it's, it's, it is researchers. And part of it is we don't teach them. We as statisticians don't teach them how to understand absolute versus relative risk well enough. And part of it is this currency of academia is this published paper. And so they're going to use this biggest effect they can show without really talking about what it actually means, what it translates to. And one of the things that I thought was was the best thing that um, Avram Blooming and Carol Tavris did in their book, Estrogen Matters, is do that. Like, because I didn't know what my, like, you, you everybody here knows the statistics, like one in eight women in their lifetime will get breast cancer, right? And you th- like, that sounds like everybody's going to get it. And, but then when you really start digging into the research and seeing what that means over a lifetime and seeing what the actual risk is. And then when you talk about something, you know, if you were taking some sort of hormone therapy that is known to perhaps raise that risk, the the it when you when you put it on a chart with the relative risk, it's so small. You know, it's so small that that drinking a glass of wine every day is about the same. And people like but like people never get a chance to see all of this in one place to see like all of these things, like being a flight attendant raises your risk because you're exposed to the, you know, this radiation, like it, it, we, we're, we're all done a great disservice by having these messages just like thrown at us down this river without us being able to really parse what that means in real life. Well, and I think that you raise a really important point, too, as we talk about this risk in a vacuum, right? So the risk is increased, but we don't say, which is the same as the risk of if you drink a glass of wine every day, or if you are a flight attendant, or, you know, if you live in a neighborhood where there's, you know, something in the water. So we don't put it on a scale that's comparable to other risk factors, and so I think that that's a really important, I think that there is some push to try to do that, to say like, this is, this is comparable to if you have a glass of wine every day. Yeah, I know it, it does seem to be getting out there, but yeah, I mean, in general, it's, it's all part of the, and I get it. Like I, th- like you're saying, everybody does have a bit of an agenda to get their information out there and making it 
pop more, you know, it is one way to do that. It's an easy way to do that because people look at it and they're like, whoa, I didn't know that. And, but letting it, I think it's important that we're, that's why we're having this show to like tell people to just dig a little bit more because I mean, you won't be as alarmed by all the headlines you see. <laughs> if nothing else, you won't think that like the eggs are going to kill you, but no, they're not going to kill you or that, like, you know, all the things that we hear all the time. Well, I think we also, we in general, the population doesn't understand individual risk versus population risk. Oh, that's a great point. And we also don't know how to interpret what that means for our own lives, right? We all have different measures of what's a big risk and what isn't and what we're willing to engage in, right? So, you know, I'm not willing to give up my nightly chocolate. And if you told me that's going to increase my risk of breast cancer, by a small percent, then so be it. But on the other hand, you know, I know the the risk when it comes to estrogen and I'm not willing to do it. So I think we all have to make some judgment for ourselves. And I think that that's, it's really tricky because we don't really, I don't understand risk and odds very well. And I'm a statistician and I've been studying this stuff for, you know, 25 years. And I think that in general, we don't really know when we say the uh, the risk is one in eight. You know, they always say, oh, if you look around a room and there's, you know, this many people in the room, this number of you is going to whatever. But that's not the case. It's on average in the population, right? And And our individual differences are what, you know, move us in one direction or the other. Right, right. No, it's, it's, it's such an important point. And it is really hard. And it's, and it's, you know, I, I I like your point that we do all have to make our own individual decisions. And and I do that all the time. I'm like, well, I do these things that lower my risk and I do some of these things that raise it. Maybe it equals it all out. I don't know, but I have to live my life and, you know, in a way that makes me happy and, and content. And, you know, we're, none of us get out of this alive. You know, like that's the way it is. So let's talk a little bit about... um correlation versus causation than when we're talking about results. Yeah. So there's one of my favorite websites is this spurious correlations page where it shows things like cheese consumption and deaths by something else, which are highly correlated, which means that they sort of increase jointly, like as one increases, the other increases, but one doesn't cause the other, right? I mean, there's there's hilarious examples out there of, of correlation. And when two things are happening at the same time, we can't tell which is causing the other. And so two things might happen jointly at the same time and be correlated, but we don't know that A causes B or B causes A. And a lot of the research we do is what's called cross-sectional or happens at one point in time. And so you might ask me today, you might take my weight and my um, uh, my hormone levels today and ask me what I ate today. And then you might look to see if there's some relationships, but you can't tell that what I ate today caused my weight to be what it is or horm- hormone levels to be what it, they were, or that my hormones weren't instrumental in what I was going to eat today, right? So we don't know how things are related at one point in time. So when we do studies, one thing to look for is, is it longitudinal or over time? So we might measure, you might measure my hormone level or my hormone levels now, and then look to see what happens over time with my diet. Or you might measure my diet 
now and look to see what happens with my hormone levels over time. That's maybe not the best, you know, example, but, but knowing it, you know, at the beginning and then looking over time gives us a little bit more of a picture of causality. Again, it doesn't rule out other factors. And, you know, this is where randomization becomes important because it could be that, you know, there's a pandemic. And so even though you're watching me over time, my behavior is different. So what do they mean when they say, because a lot of times they try to rule out correlation with um, controlling for different aspects. So what does that mean in practical application? Yeah. So so if we do a study where we're looking at um, a treatment for breast cancer and we have men and women in there and we want, well, uh, no, maybe that's, I, I should think of a better example. Um, okay. So I think go back to the example of if we have one group where everybody's 40 to 60 and one group where everyone's 60 to 80, if we control for age, if we take into consideration that we know there are different distributions of ages in our two groups, then we can kind of remove the effect of age and and look at that difference in the two groups absent that age effect. Because if you if you have differences in your treatment and control, for instance, that might be attributable to something else. So if all of your if all of your tall people are in one group and all of your short people are in another group, you know, you don't know if this difference is because of the grouping variable, because of the treatment or because of the exercise intervention, or if it's because of their height, right? So it could be that everyone who's doing, you know, rock climbing is tall and they look different than everyone who's doing yoga and they're short. And so when they say we've controlled for, it's taking away, it's trying to take away any any impact that height might have on that intervention. So how do they actually do that? So let me give you like a nutrition does this all the time, right? So we have found that people who eat arugula have a 30% less likelihood of premature death by cardiovascular disease. And we controlled for exercise, socioeconomics, and I, I don't know. Let's just say those two. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. yeah. Um, what does that control look like, and what are you doing? Are you taking people out who make over something a year, or what? How are you controlling for that? So you're doing it statistically. Basically, you're fitting models that take into consideration. You're sort of grouping all the people together and averaging over them. Okay. Way. Okay. Now I'm following you. Okay. So I mean, it's 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 a it's a you're. It, Statistically, you're kind of conditioning on them. You're taking, given that you've seen- And you're still seeing that even when you just, when you grouped people together who exercise five times a week, you're still seeing that. When you see, when you put people together who don't exercise at all, you're still seeing that, right? Yeah. That would so be controlling. Say, once that. we've taken into consideration that there are these differences in our groups, we still see that gotcha. the exercise intervention makes a difference. Right, right. No, that's, that's a, that's a great point. Yeah. I mean, the the challenge is we, and this is why randomization is the gold standard, because the challenge is we can't control for everything, right? We could only control for things we measure um, and collect. And so um, we do as we do the best we can. And this is why a lot of, a lot of research is considered sort of hypothesis generating, helps us come up with new ideas. And it's why reproducibility is really important. It's why, you know, 
why we are we, why we continue to test interventions we've already tested and why we continue to try to uh, make sure that a new treatment works in another group, right? Because we want to make sure that we've taken into consideration that it wasn't a fluke, that we didn't see some random occurrence in this one study, that it, it, it can happen again and again. When do you feel pretty confident that something is something, for lack of a better way to say it? You know what I mean? Like, how many studies do you need? Do you need, like, a certain number of randomized, yeah. controlled, you know, it's a good question. And 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 so there are there are ways we can kind of test things when we have multiple studies called meta-analysis. I think you recently talked about a meta-analysis in, of exercise of menopausal women. And I think their conclusion was we need more studies. That's exactly what they came up with. It's so like we see this stuff, but we need more research because the studies were kind of crappy, which is exactly what they said in better language than that. Yeah. Yeah. They were nicer. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so it's it's hard. Because, I mean, this is where I think people hate statisticians because there is no like, oh, you just do this and this is your answer. And there's a lot of different ways we can sort of assess things. And so there isn't really, I don't know, you know, it depends. It's the, it's the old, it depends, right? Because did you do the same study and repeat it in a lot of different populations? If so, like if I saw that this worked in old women and young women and perimenopausal women and, you know, women who haven't hit the menopause transition yet, and then maybe three or four studies is enough because there's enough variation across the studies that give me similar results, you know? And so it just really depends on who's in the studies and um, so, uh, these other study design things that we've talked about, were they randomized or not? Are they gen- are they generalizable or not? You know, are they peer reviewed or not? Um, were they all done in 20 year old college students at, you know, Harvard or were they done across in a cross section of, of people? And so it's really the evidence taken together. Do you ever put any weight on animal studies for people? I'm glad you asked. Um, I think animal studies are a great way to to generate hypotheses, to think about things we should do. I know there's a lot of controversy about doing research in animals. Uh, We do get a lot of interesting information, but humans are not giant rats. Um, And, you know, for all the reasons I talked about where you can control a lot of things in in animals, we can't control in humans. Um, they don't always pan out. So if I'm doing, if I'm looking at some supplement or or research about a treatment and they've only done animal studies, I'm not so confident in it. Um, if they've done human studies too, maybe they don't see as big of an effect or that's okay. I mean, again, it's hard to say, you know, a human is a hundred times larger than this animal. So we're going to take the dose a hundred times. Like it's hard to make those equivalencies. And so, um, I think uh, animal studies form good basis for doing science in humans, um, but it's just a different, it's, it's a whole different beast because we really, we don't have that same variability that we have in humans. Um, and I worked, I did a lot of work uh, earlier in my career in stroke research, and it turns out we've, we're really good at finding therapies that help prevent stroke in animals, but we haven't had the same success when those those are translated to humans. And it's really made me think a lot about 
why, you know, what are those differences and, and, and how do we try to replicate those really rigorous designs in humans? And it's, it's just hard. People, people are going to do what they want to do. You know, they're going to, they may even come and tell you when they're in a study that, yes, I did those exercises every day, but we don't really know that they did. And so Unless you capture them <laughs> and put them in a lab. I mean, it is right. It is very hard. I mean, it's it, nothing. None of this is perfect. Absolutely. None of this is perfect. I mean, we're all just doing the best we can, including researchers. Right. It's and there is a lot of good science out there as well. There is a lot of good science. There's, um, you know, there's a lot of it. And, you know, there there needs to be more for sure. And particularly around menopause. And um, and that's why I love the show because you find those people who are doing the good science and you talk with them and um, we learn from them and it's, it's amazing. Um, but they're, they're, I think, you know, we're a burgeoning population of, of the, the world right now. And it's, um, there needs to be more. One of the things that did kind of um, frustrates, not the right word, but it, it was a frustration. So I went to the North American menopause society meeting, which was amazing. It was jam-packed four days of nothing but the kind of research you're talking about but at the same at the same time there was part of my brain that was like I felt like they needed a you know double blind placebo randomized controlled study to tell me broccoli was green do you know what I mean like and I was like I don't think we like sometimes I wish that they would be able to even tenuously even hesitantly connect a dot you know that yeah where where it's where it seems so clear to me like and it's not going to hurt you to connect this dot. And we know that exercise is good for you. So can't we say like making muscle is good if sarcopenia is bad and estrogen is anabolic? Can't we just make that jump, even though you can't do this exercise research in an easy way? You know, that's where I get a little. That's where I come in and start just running my mouth and saying some things, you know, because it's hard. It yeah. is hard. Yeah. Yeah. So can we talk a little bit about supplements and herbals? Of course, because I was going to ask about that too. Good. Cause I see all the time on, on the, on the Facebook page and, you know, other places where people are asking about them. And um, so they're regulated differently by the food and drug administration. They're regulated as food, not as drugs. So the standards by which that they are, are processed is different and so there's no requirement that there's evidence that they're safe and effective. And there's no regulation of what goes into them as long as it's described in the ingredients. And so I just want to make sure that people are cautious that, you know, what they're taking that they get at their drugstore may be different than what I'm taking that I get at my drugstore because they might be made by different companies. And, you know, I see all the time where women say, oh, I tried x and it worked for a little while and then it stopped working and there could be so many reasons why one could be like the placebo effect is real and so in the beginning i want it to work and so it does work and then over time i'm like eh, maybe this isn't so great it could be that the formulations changed and that what you were getting in the beginning isn't the same as what you were getting uh, later on so i just want to make sure that people understand that the research is different the research climate is different for supp supplements and herbals because they have different um, regulations and standards. A thousand percent. And 
I I feel that very keenly as someone who wades into those waters with some regularity, both on the sports side and on the menopause side, and now the sports menopause side. <laughs> so, um, yes, and people should very much know that there has have been studies where they find no active ingredients in some of these things. I mean, that is a thing too. I use two resources. I'm curious on your impressions of them. I got one from Andrew Huberman and the other I can't remember, but I love it. So I use examine.com and consumerlab.com and consumerlab.com, particularly for supplements, because they do that. And they actually will, if they discover a supplement that they have given a passing grade is no longer a passing grade, I I will get an alert about that and be like, yeah, it's amazing, amazing resource. I pay for it. It's not a ton, but it's worth it for me because I talk about this so much. I'm like, this is this is a business expense. I need this resource because I can't possibly go through all the, you know, the certificate of analysis of every supplement that we talk about. And there's just no way. But I have found that an invaluable research. And examine.com, I really, really like because they go through the body of research on something and they grade the research. Oh. Yes. So, I mean, if they if there are studies that are the ones that you've talked about that are sort of at the gold standard, they get weighted heavier and they get like a higher grade, you know, on the scale. And it's it's just a really great way to do a lot of that work for you that you might not even be able, honestly, to do by yourself. Yeah, that's great. I mean, we need more resources like that. I mean, to help synthesize because there is I mean, we started with there's so much out there, right? There's so much out there. And to have people who really want to take what the scientists are writing for each other and help synthesize it for people who need it, who need to use it. I think that's great. I'll have to check them out. I am not familiar with those websites. Yeah, no, let me know what you think, because I've got, I got both. Oops, I just threw my pen. I got both of those from reputable sources that I trust and, you know, going into it and seeing the work they're doing. And I pay for both of them. They're not free. I mean, but as a content creator, I appreciate that somebody has to do all that work and it's a lot of work and I'm willing to, you know, pay for it because they are doing a lot of hard work that I don't have the capacity to do. The other thing I want to say about supplements and herbals is that they can interact with other medications And so that for people who are taking them, they should talk to their doctors or their practitioners and make sure that they know that they're taking them. And list them. Like when they when they ask you if you're taking any drugs, you know, like that counts. If you think that it's working for something, you are using it medicinally and it should count as what you're taking as a drug. A lot of people don't do that. I know they don't do that. Um, But if you think that something is potent enough that it is working for you, then it is potent enough to interact with something else. Yes. Yeah. 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 No, 100%. I agree with that, too. And those sites that I gave you will also list that. They will list that under the potential concerns or potential hazards or potential interactions. I think that's especially great because the FDA doesn't regulate, then those resources aren't necessarily out there in the same way. And so to have them in one place and to know that is really great. I hope my doctor uses it. <laughs> so I think this has been enormously useful. Is there anything that you had thought about in this discussion to talk about that we haven't yet covered? Um, just one other thing about where papers are published. Mm-hmm. There's been, and this came up a lot during COVID, there's a big preprint push these days where people are posting publications on sites like MedArchive or BioArchive, where they can um, 
put them out there for anyone to see before they are peer reviewed. And just as a caution that sometimes, you know, not not everyone is well-intentioned. And so, you know, this is another red flag where you want to sort of take it with a grain of salt. Um, I, I meant to mention that earlier. Um, that that and and it's not to say that preprints are bad. It's great to get science out there more quickly, but not again, not everyone has the best intentions and people will put things out there um, that maybe wouldn't get peer reviewed because they wouldn't pass muster and they um, want to get it out there. So just be cautious about that. A hundred percent. and and even if they are well intentioned, they are human beings and people make mistakes. People transcribe numbers, people, you know, I've seen it happen. And like another set of eyeballs will catch that. And it's it's important. Yes. Yes. Yeah. For sure. Well, thank you so much, Leslie. I feel, uh, I'm glad we had the discussion. Like I, I knew a lot of that, but I, I didn't know all the nuances of that. So I feel like I have walked away with a better understanding of, um, how the internals of good research work. So I appreciate that. And uh, good luck with your journey, <laughs> with, your, with your own happy birthday. Oh, thank you. you know, well, we thanks for you talking well. with me and, and thanks for all of what you're doing. I mean, it's so important and to have a community of other women who are all experienced, you know, athletic and experiencing changes that, you know, our bodies aren't ourselves anymore. It's, it's just, it's been amazing. Well, that's our show. Check out our rebroadcast next week with Dr. Stephanie Falbion, the medical director of the North American Menopause Society. And she has a lot to say because when it comes to dealing with menopause openly in our culture, especially in the workplace, Dr. Falbion believes we are where we were with pregnancy about 30 years ago. And she has some ideas on how we can all help accelerate the progress and bring doctors and culture up to speed. So check that one out. Have a great holiday season. And of course, stay feisty. You've been listening to Hit Play, Not Pause, a feisty menopause podcast for active performance-minded women. I'm your host, Celine Yeager. The show is edited and produced by the strong, talented, and amazing women at Live Feisty Media. Follow us on social media at Feisty Menopause. And please help us spread the word. Screenshot and share this episode on your social media channels with the tag at Feisty Menopause. Share the show with your friends. And please subscribe, like, review, and rate this show wherever you get your podcasts. Word of mouth and good reviews make it easier for other listeners to find. Thanks for listening, and as always, stay feisty. As a lifelong runner and cyclist, I am stoked to announce that Tifosi Optics has come on as a podcast sponsor. The beauty of Tifosi sports glasses is that they hit all the marks. They are shatterproof polycarbonate, so the lenses not only reduce glare, but also offer scratch resistance and complete eye protection. They stay put. 
They have little hydrophilic rubber nose pads that actually get more grippy the more you sweat. So they stay secure and don't slide down your face even when you're running in sauna-like conditions. No matter what sport you do, they have a shade for your activity, including tennis, fishing, pickleball, running, cycling, and just hanging out at the beach. And they are super reasonably well-priced, which is very hard to find in a sea of overpriced eyewear. And they just look freaking rad. So head on over to tifosioptics.com and use the code FM, capital F, and capital M, like feisty menopause, number 20, FM20, to get 20% off your order today. I'll put a clickable link in the show notes to make it a snap.